We make our beginning in the name of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to part four of our Between the Testaments course. And I want to look at that first sheet there that you have been given today, which is called Goals. Now, one, two, and three was our lesson last time. That was part three of our course. And I want to review with you in just a moment some of the things that we learned at that time. Today, we want to look at four, five, and six. We're going to look eventually at the middle section of your Between the Testaments timeline. We're going to talk a little bit about Ptolemy the Second Philadelphus and his great library at Alexandria, Africa. And then we're going to talk in great detail about Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who is a central figure in the whole history of the Jews between the Testaments. And then we're going to have a reaction to Antiochus IV Epiphanes by the Maccabean brothers who will arm up and defeat him and will reestablish worship in the temple at Jerusalem. It's a lot of history. So let me get started here by, first of all, asking you to remember, as I remind you, of the five, even six, most important figures of the Between the Testament section. Five of them fit in what we call Between the Testaments. One of them spans from Between the Testaments into the New Testament era. Let's recall those five biggest names that I taught you last time. Number one was who that controlled the world? Alexander the Great, and he is on the first top section of your timeline. Alexander the Great, and I'll read to you about him later in capsule form, was the man who got the world to speak Greek so that when Jesus came along and the Apostle Paul, the world had a lingua franca, an international language that everybody that was anybody spoke, namely Greek. And so Paul and Luke and the other New Testament writers could write in Greek and people understood it no matter where they were. So Alexander the Great becomes our number one important person between the Testaments. Who becomes number two? Who did we say was the next one we really wanted to remember? And he's way at the left of your middle section of your time chart. Ptolemy the second Philadelphus, okay? He's the man, and remember... 
This ties in with our lesson last time. We had studied Ezekiel 26, correct? And we learned that Alexander the Great had built a causeway from the mainland out to the island, completely destroyed them for a while, and that ruined them as the commercial capital of the Middle East. So the capital of the commercial empire was moved to Alexandria, Alexandria, Africa, where Ptolemy Philadelphus was king. And that made good sense because it was right on the a seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. And so ships could go everywhere over the Mediterranean and spread the goods that were being produced, transported, traded, whatever you want to say, from Alexandria. Now remember I told you, when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he had several cities named after him, Alexandria, all over the place. But this one became the most important, Alexandria, Egypt, and Ptolemy Philadelphus was the man who was very interested in building his library and having all the books that he had there put into Greek. I'll tell you about the Jews translating their Hebrew Old Testament into Greek at a later time. All right, the third person that becomes the most important that we have to know between the Testaments. Now, a lot of people would add more than five or six people. I'm keeping it down to a minimum so that you don't get so confused. If you open your chart completely all the way up so you can see the middle section, that'll help you a lot more than trying to turn it back and forth. All right, who is the third person who becomes absolutely the most important along with Alexander, Ptolemy, Philadelphus. Who is it? Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. Now he is not he is not Antiochus the Great. That was his father. But I'm not going to concentrate much on him. But we have to know Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes which was known to the Jews as the madman because he took over Jerusalem and its temple, and just to make it short, he burnt pig meat on the altar in the temple, a meat that was considered unclean to the Jews. So we'll leave him there for the moment. I cannot emphasize how important he is in Jewish history. Now, in opposition to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, there arose a family, and they become the fourth most important. We've had Alexander the Great, Ptolemy Philadelphus II, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and now the fourth one is who? Maccabees. The Maccabean family. Yes, the Maccabees. 
and I'll have to tell you about them because they have a father by the name of Matthias, and then he has five sons, John, Jonathan, Judas, Simon, and Eliezer. Now, I'll tell you all about them later. I'm going to do a lot of repeating today so that these names become familiar to you. Now, this Maccabean family, yeah? Matthias is the dad, Judas, Jonathan, Simon, and who's the other Simon one? is on the third um, uh, level of the chart. I've got it right here, but oh. who's the other one you named? Oh, I'm going to go over those. Eliezer, Eliezer. and John. There was a John and a Jonathan. Oh, okay. Weird. Okay. Okay, so we have the Maccabean family, and then we come to the Fifth most important, and that's on your third section, way, way at the right, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is born, we think, somewhere between 8 and 4 B.C. See, we got to have him born before Herod the Great, who dies in 4 B.C. So whoever said it, you know, was off by a few years. So don't let that confuse you. But I also have a sixth person that spans between the between the Testaments and goes on into the New Testament, and he becomes our sixth most important person. He is a Roman. Julius Caesar? No. Octavian. Octavian Caesar, known better to you and me as Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Now, let's remember this. This is technical. Julius Caesar was the first Caesar. Octavian Caesar, or Augustus Caesar, there went out a tree from Caesar Augustus. Remember that in Luke 2? He became the second Caesar, but he was the first Roman emperor. Julius Caesar was not an emperor. He was just a Caesar, the ruler. Later on, after Caesar Augustus or Caesar Octavian, they got two names for the same guy, after he defeated Cleopatra IV and Mark Antony, he became over the whole Roman Empire and was declared emperor and Caesar, but the reason I say he comes from the between the Testament into the new, he ruled from 37 BC until 14 AD. And then, just to throw a little footnote in here so that I can confuse you, the man who took his place and became the third Caesar and the second emperor was Tiberius Caesar, after whom the Sea of Galilee was named. It's not only called the Sea of Galilee, it's called the Sea of Tiberius. And you learn about Tiberius in Luke 3. You see in Luke 2, you hear a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. But in Luke 3, you learn that Jesus starts his ministry at the time of Tiberius Caesar. So Luke is very interested in giving you all of this history. 
And if you think it's just me trying to confuse you with all of this stuff, you are not going to understand what is happening in the New Testament. Not completely, unless you know a lot about the middle section, the bottom section of our Between the Testaments, because, and I repeat this again, because it's so important, you will never understand where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots, somebody said Zealot, remember Jesus had a disciple by the name of Simon the Zealot. Not just Simon Peter, that's a different Simon. He also had a Simon Zealot. So we're going to be studying in the days to come after I get done with the Apocrypha, we're going to be studying in another part of our course, we're going to be studying the Pharisees, a whole day on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Herodians, because I could have made it seven people. I could have put Herod the Great in. Um, he started to rule Judea over the Jews in exactly the same year that Caesar Augustus started to rule in 37 BC. I could have put him in. The Herodians came from him. And in case I forget to say it today, um, one of the um, Jewish leaders um, had all of the Idiomites circumcised. So they had a different religion, but they were circumcised like the Jews. So Herod the Great may very well have been circumcised. Whoa, I didn't know that when I was studying. It gets to be really intriguing history as you go along. And then we will throw in as a fifth group with the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, um, and the Herodians, we will throw in the Essenes, who we know as the Dead Sea Scroll people. Who are all these wow. Groups? These are all different groups. Well, we're going to be talking. When I get to that part, we'll do each one, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, though I'll be mentioning a few of them today with the Maccabeans and that type of a thing. So our goal is, next of all, to go down here and look at the time chart. So let's lay out, and we're going to look at the middle portion of your time chart as we look here. I'll be using the chart in front. You can look up here and at yours before. And I'm going to start. Remember on the first part, look at my dot up here. The dot flying around. If I had my former chart up here, you'd see Alexander the Great, okay? About 43 years later, you have Ptolemy Philadelphus but I'm going to go down here around his death date, around 246. And there you see right up above in small print on your chart, the LXX translation begun. Now LXX stands for 70. Technically, it should be 72 according to tradition. Now, I'll tell you why that is in just a moment. But those of you who know something about Bible translation know that this LXX is called the Septuagint.
to again. That's your word for 70. Now the tradition is, and I'll read this to you in a little bit, is that Ptolemy Philadelphus ordered peoples all over the world because Egypt controlled a lot of the world at this time. He ordered all of the nations to take their most famous tradition book and translate it for him into Greek. That meant that people that were over in the Roman area, that were over in the Indian area that Alexander had conquered, over in Turkey, whatever. Their tradition books were to be translated into Greek. Obviously, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures would be the tradition book of the Jews. Now, before Ptolemy died, the Jews got their first five books translated into Greek. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Through the years later, they translated the whole Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and it got into the library that was at Alexandria. Okay, that type of a thing. Now, I wanted to also add to that, and I'll read it to you later, but sometimes you need to say these things twice to appreciate them. Tradition says, and it's a false story, but tradition says that the Jews took six men from each of the 12 tribes, multiply, 72, good, and had them separated. And they each translated the Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek. And each translation came out absolutely the same. Now you know that's absolutely impossible. But that's the tradition that was passed along. And as Paula said here, it added up to 72. And that's why when Jesus is on trial, he is before the Sanhedrin. Now, was the Sanhedrin made up of 70, or was it made up of 72? You remember, I think it's maybe in Luke 11, I'm just guessing here. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. Now, if you read the King James, you will have him sending out 70 disciples. But if you read the Beck translation and some others, he sends them out 72, two by two. That's because the manuscripts differ as to the number. But the number 72 is probably the way the Sanhedrin was made up and so forth. And the high priest, if you would have a tie and somebody's not there, he would break the tie um, in the voting and so forth. Remember how Caiaphas stepped in after they couldn't find any witnesses that agreed against Jesus, and he tore his robes, and he says he's committed blasphemy, and he asked him then to make a statement, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said yes, and he said that's blasphemy. He made the decision, and then the council agreed with him. So see, you have to know all of this, what's going on, when Jesus is arrested, he's taken before Annas, the high priest, 
Then all of a sudden he's before Caiaphas, the high priest, but Annas is the power behind the oh, throne. Sorry. Because what happens is that in the meantime, the Romans, who are now in charge after Pompey took it in 63 BC, they moved the high priest willy-nilly. They said, oh, Annas is, we don't like him. We're putting Caiaphas, his son-in-law, in charge. And it happens, and I'll show you how it happens as we go along. So here we have, and I put Antiochus Epiphanes the Great up here uh, because he's the father of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now before I go on here, I want you to notice down here at the bottom, you have Daniel 11.6, Daniel 11.7.8, Daniel 11.9, and it goes through all kinds of things in the book of Daniel. Well, I printed that all out for you, didn't I? Remember in chapter 11 that I had all those verses, and then I explained how this history falls apart. That was several classes ago. I said, read all the way from chapter 11 through Daniel 12, um, verse 3. And I put in dark print the interpretation of each, which was, about as boring as it could come if you don't like history. But this is all prophecy. No wonder Daniel was confused. You and I, who live past the time that the history happened, were still confused, okay? And you can see why liberal scholars at Princeton, Harvard, Yale, UCLA, um, you name the theological seminaries around, almost all of them say those chapters of Daniel were written after um, 166 B.C., 165, and then it was prophecy ex eventu. That's a Latin term which means prophecy after the event. It would be like me writing today and writing about 9-11 and the towers and act like I'm telling you about them before the towers went down in New York. That's how they handle prophecy, these liberal seminaries, and the boys come out in like the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and they believe all this, that the Bible cannot be trusted. These are faux writers. A guy said, I'm Daniel writing, and he was not Daniel at all. So you can see why we in the church, in our Lutheran church that's conservative, Missouri Synod, Northwestern, um, which is the, um, the um, Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Norwegian Synod, um, we fight to say the Bible is right in every way. So this is very, very important. So these Daniel things here are already in your notes. The original sheets that I gave you, pages 1 through 10, have all those passages written out. Now I want to go up here, and I want you to notice here that the Seleucids, that's another name, let's say, for Syria. Make it simple. And... Um, that the, the, the um, 
that the um, that the Seleucids up here are Syria, and they now take over, and these Antiochus and things, they are taking control here. Now notice here also, for the first time, before we even get to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that we have some apocryphal books being written. So when we study the Apocrypha, some of them happened before the Maccabean period, okay? And then we also see here on your chart, in this box that has the perforated lines around, we have a term called pseudepigrapha. Those are books that the church never accepted, except the first one written, um, and it's written in many different parts, um, first and second Enoch, in fact, I think there's four Enochs, but even the chapters are divided up. Um, these here were never accepted in the church except in the Ethiopian church, the Abyssinian church. They consider First Enoch to actually be part of the Old Testament as scripture. And of course, the Roman Catholics, they accept Ecclesiasticus and Tobit as scriptures that are Old Testament books, and they have it in there, and we'll talk about those when we come to the Apocrypha. Now, moving down here, I want you to see Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. So, so important. As I said, the third most important of the, between the Testaments. And then what we have to do we have to look up here, and this says here, what does that say up here? End of the Zodi, of the, um, I want to pronounce that correctly, um, Zodiac, yeah, um, priesthood. Now remember, Zodiac was the high priest in the days of King David. And then, coming out of the family of Aaron, not out of the family of the Levites. The Levites were all priests, but those who were actually sons of Aaron, they could only be high priests. And so from David's time down to this time, you find out that that priesthood had been kept pure. But with the coming of the Maccabees, who are Levites, they are going to become, some of the brothers, two of the brothers are going to become high priests. And that will continue all the way down to the time of Jesus. And the first ones, Simon and his son John Hycanus, they're pretty faithful. After that, Antagonus, the first, who doesn't want his Jewish name, Judas, but is really after Greek culture, he comes in, and his brother comes in, and they mess the whole place up. And the weird thing is, the very thing that the Maccabees, the original brothers, fought against, namely 
to Greekize all the people, their great-grandson of Matthias and things, they Greekize everything. Does it sound like anything in America where our fathers start out one way and then we go the opposite way? It's called history. It's called not appreciating your heritage. And this is what we are dealing with because by the time we come to Jesus' day, we have those who are very Greekized, we are those who are very Jewized, and we have all the mix-up of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and Jesus is in constant combat with them because he is holding to the true religion of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees have gone too far to one side, and the Sadducees have gone too far to both sides. And it is really mixed up. Sounds like today. And you can see why they said, crucify him. Sounds like today. It is exactly like today, but it's been like that throughout church history also. It's not just us who have lost things. Other civilizations have lost also. Okay, now we come down here, and I want to take you back to your goal sheet so I can give you some of these dates. All I'll say while I'm still on your charts here is that when Matthias, who is the father of the Maccabean brothers, when he revolts and is then killed, his son Judas takes over and he becomes the military leader. He decides we will fight on the Sabbath. See, Antiochus Epiphanes IV was very smart. He attacked on Saturdays, the Sabbath day. And the Jews had do not work on the Sabbath, so they didn't fight back, and he would slaughter them. Well, Matthias and his son finally said, we're going to fight on the Sabbath. Okay, now when Matthias died, Judas became the military leader, okay? His brother, Jonathan, became the spiritual leader, and he became eventually high priest, all right? Now, on the bottom section of your chart, we get to the next brother that becomes very important. He would be down here where my um, little Fleischer is going. His name is Simon Maccabeus. And he's the last of the Maccabean brothers to rule before we start getting the ancestors called Hasmoneans, which are an extension of the Maccabees. Um, if you didn't comprehend that, don't worry. We'll talk about that um, in, a, in a time to be. Now, First Maccabees gives you that history going from Alexander the Great through Ptolemy Philadelphus, and taking you up to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and giving you the Maccabean history, and boom, stops. At the end of 1 Maccabees, he stops with Simon, doesn't give you any more history of the stuff that goes on, on the bottom part, the third section of your chart. Now you would think, would you not, that 2 Maccabees would pick up where 1 Maccabees leaves off? Not. 
it starts earlier than 1 Maccabees. And it is, well, 1 Maccabees, well, the person who wrote it had a Sadducee outlook. 2 Maccabees had a Pharisaic, Pharisee outlook. So they're writing to get points across to convince people of their type of religion. Now, in case I don't say it again, let's look at those five brothers. I told you there was John. We don't know too much about him. He, um, along with Simon, and along with um, Jonathan, they... Um, are assassinated. Treachery kills them. But Judas Maccabeus and his brother Eliezer, they die in battle. And I think you will enjoy how, well, not enjoy, um, be intrigued with how Eliezer died. Antiochus Epiphanes was attacking with all of his elephants. Did you notice that? When you read through the thing, uh, that at one time somebody came with what, 102 elephants against the other guy that had hundreds of elephants, and they met. Well, they did a lot of their fighting with elephants. Well, Eliezer, in order to kill one of the people, uh, one of the leading generals that was on one of the elephants, dove under the elephant, stabbed it. The elephant, of course, fell on him, killed him. And the other man was knocked off. Kind of a interesting um, little, maybe insignificant part of the Maccabean battles. Now Judas really knocked out Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. And now I want to go back to your chart on uh, your notebook, your goal sheet, your first sheet. Please go back with me. Your first sheet called Goals. And um, let's um, look at number six. Details about the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the response of the Maccabees. Now, I'm not going to have time to go in today to Daniel 11.3 to 12.3, but you'll see that whole history spelled out in fact, if you can keep that goal sheet and turn to page 8, turn to page 8 in your outline, the very first thing I gave you, you will see in the middle of the page, page 8, you will see a title there, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanies, 175 to 164, BC, and he is what we call an initial type of the Antichrist, which is laid out in 1 John, 2 John, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, after Daniel gives you a whole history here of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, go to page 9. And in the middle, you will see a part called 
the enemy of God's people, the Antichrist. Because, as prophecy often does, it will give you prophecy up to here. And then, in the next verse, after several verses, it'll jump like, like 200, maybe to the end of time. And that's what happens here. Luther read, and so do our Lutheran theologians, that from Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, this is predicting the coming of the ultimate Antichrist, which we in our Lutheran confessions call the papacy. Okay? And you have to read it and see how it all happens. So I don't have time to go into that in this course. That would be another study of what we call eschatology, study of the last things or the last times. But what I want to do today is take you back to your goals sheet, your goals, number six. And I want to look at those dates. These are your most important dates concerning Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, and the Maccabeans, okay? Very important. So the first date you see there is what? Under number six. 168 B.C., Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrates the Jerusalem temple. Okay? Wow. All right. Then, and that would be burning the pigs and things like that. In 166, that's two years later, Judas Maccabeus, and by the way, the name Maccabean means the hammer or the hammer that they hammered the enemies down. So Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, defeats Antiochus IV Epiphanes and captures Jerusalem. So the Syrians are finally driven out of the Holy Land as a whole, okay? Then in 165, and this you'll find very, very intriguing, it says the Jerusalem, and you'll notice I left a word out, write the word temple in there. 165, the Jerusalem temple is rededicated for eight days in the month of Chizvev. Now, that is the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. Here's where it becomes confusing. The first month of the Jewish calendar is our March-April. It's called Nisan or Aviv in the Old Testament. So you have, after this, you have to have an 11th and a 12th month, well, really a 10th, 11th, and 12th to get to the first month of the Jews. So this is the ninth month. Now, do not confuse this with the first month when the Jews celebrated Passover or the month later, um, 50 days later, when they celebrated Passover or the seventh month, which was, in a way, their most important month when you had the Feast of Trumpets the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths or Trumpets. That's the seventh month. 
Now we're in the ninth month. It's called Chizveh. And it's our December. And for eight days, they celebrated the victory over the Syrians. And on the eighth day, that became known as Hanukkah, and it fell on what would be our December 25th. It's called the Feast of Lights, which ties in with all the Christmas lights. Isn't that interesting? That's why the Jews celebrate at the same time we do Christmas. They're doing Hanukkah because that's remembering how they defeated their great enemy, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and rededicated the temple that had been rebuilt by the Jews when they came back from Babylon, Zerubbabel's temple. They rededicated it. And see what had happened in the meantime. Uh, these Greek guys, um, Jews, they had torn down the wall of partition that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. They wanted to Greek eyes. And this was a big fight among the Jews. Do we want to go along with society and be Greek eyes? And I'll read to you today. And I see I'm not going to get to it today. So next time will not be the Apocrypha yet. I'm going to read you some really super, super important stuff. And we'll probably get into a little bit of the Apocrypha because to do that in one class is almost virtually impossible. And I'll probably deal with some Maccabean stuff and tell you some fascinating stories because it won't take me long to read all the, the things I want to read to you. But at the same time, I want you to hear how this whole Greekizing thing just controlled so many of the Jews. And then when the true Jews got back in, they started to kill these people off and see what these Greek eyes Jews had done. They had gone along and they got themselves uncircumcised. Whoa, if it isn't painful enough to be circumcised as an adult, now they got uncircumcised. That's like having your tattoos taken off, I guess. Oh my goodness. I mean, you want to talk about crazy history. This is how it goes, okay? So I'll read you some of that next time. But for today, I wanted you to know about Hanukkah, which is also called the Feast of Lights, and the eighth day of the celebration always falls on December the 25th. I don't know, I find that fascinating. But how would we know all that stuff unless you knew the history between the Testaments, okay? And our final point for today is 142 B.C., Jewish independence under that brother that's on the bottom part of your chart to the left, Simon. When he becomes high priest, um, there is Jewish independence. They finally can say, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is ours. Well, that didn't last too long, did it? When the Romans came in 63 BC under Pompey and everything went under Roman rule, 
which we find in the days of Jesus, everything is under Roman rule. Wow. Now are you starting to get just a little bit of a feeling why you need to know what happened between Malachi and Matthew, Mark, and Luke in order to fully understand your New Testament, which opens up and tells you about Herod the Great? Oh, who comes in between the Testaments? Caesar Augustus, who comes in between the Testaments. Yeah, and Cleopatra. Yeah, and Cleopatra and Mark Antony. And I never even realized until I was teaching this course, there were all kinds of queens named Cleopatra. (laughs) So, and I know Gloria here, she likes history a lot. So this chart helps you kind of have a foothold on some of the very hard-to-understand parts of the Bible. But then I wanted to do this last thing here as we close down here today and notice that in the time of Simon, as this independence comes and the people feel free again and like real Jews who have been remembered by God and are liberated, the expectation of the Messiah grows big. He's just around the corner. He's going to come now that we're free. And they don't realize Jesus will be coming in order to free the people. Not in a time of freedom, but he's coming in a time of slavery to set us free. See, this is why when we hear about the Ashbury Revival, now I'm sure you've heard some things like this. I've written a report that looks negative. I always have questions about revivals where people are raising their hands, getting all emotional. I think God is working a revival time. I have no doubt about that. Now, how many of the people really know about Jesus? I just heard a sermon this morning where the pastor, he's a very famous pastor, was um, saying that the majority of people in the church today do not know God. They don't know Psalm 46, be silent and know that I am God. They're projecting themselves into the God that they want. And, um, you know, Luther said it very clearly. Emotions come, emotions go, and emotions are deceiving. And a lot of these people in these revivals, a lot of them know Jesus very well. They're very sincere. They know their Bible. They're educated in theology. But I would guess that the majority are there emotionally wrapped up in the movement. They know that things are going bad in the country, in the world, and they know we need God. Now, the God they worship, that's another story because he comes in all forms, shapes, sizes. Um, He comes under the title Buddha, Allah, Yahweh, Jesus. (laughs) And so... We have to make sure that when we are preaching the word, and I have to say, Pastor Ramdot had a funeral um, for one of the men who came to this class, John Went, a few weeks ago, 
And I tell you, he gave the best Lutheran testimony when he was there before a crowd that had some Muslims in it and all kinds of people. He made sure you know that to believe in Jesus means I am a sinner who totally needs Jesus as my substitute, and I need to believe that he gave me that forgiveness and that I need forgiveness because I am a rotten, filthy, good-for-nothing sinner. And see, that's where you drive the people at a revival off and out that you tell them, you are totally useless, sinful, and you need Jesus 100%. And they're not quite ready for that because the world has told them, oh, you deserve this and that because you're a nice guy. And um, it is so hard to get this across, and you will never get across unless the Holy Spirit affects the action. That's why Luther, in the third article of the Apostles' Creed, where we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, that he is Lord and giver of life, and then the explanation, he says, that the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified, that has taught me how to do good work, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. See, if the Holy Spirit converts your heart and then leaves and you say, I now got free will, I will work my way to heaven, you will end up in unbelief instantly if the Holy Spirit ever leaves. He is the power that gives you the will to go on and to live for Jesus, and to live meaningfully, that you learn to be silent. Be silent, and know that I am God. Because we want too many answers a lot of times. And you know, I like the statement that God gave us one mouth and two ears. I always add, and two eyes. So that we shut the mouth, we open the ears, he who has ears, let him hear, and two eyes to see God in action, not ourselves in action. Our tendency is to be looking at ourselves instead of looking to God. And I think Psalm 46, which by the way, happens to be the Reformation Psalm, mm -hmm. it's the basis for a mighty fortress, is our God. And there it says, be still and know that I am God. In other words, shut your mouth, be silent, keep your eyes open, reading the scriptures, and your ears open to what God wants you to learn. And that's the practical part of our course today. So Lord's blessings to you until we meet again, which is in two weeks, which means I, I mean, which is in one week which means I got a lot of preparation to do real quickly. So now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with us forever. Amen. Amen.